Real estate investing, even on a very small scale, remains a tried and true means of building an individual's cash flow and wealth. Robert Kiyosaki. Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? All right, people, here we go with another one. The ABCs of Real Estate Investing by Ken McElroy says the secrets of finding hidden profits most investors miss. So Ken McElroy is a rich dad advisor for Robert Kiyosaki's business, right? And so he and Robert Kiyosaki do a lot of deals together. Ken is more of a property manager than sort of an, you know, a straight real estate investor. So a lot of the deals that he does he actually does it with other people's money and then takes a portion of the equity for himself and then of course is the property manager or he just manages properties for other people who buy properties and then seek him out in his company to manage them so he's got a lot of insight into the process and the game uh the book was very helpful for like a new investor or new real estate investor to sort of a roadmap of like where to start, how to write a goal in the real estate world, and then um, who to reach out to, to try and execute on that goal. Once you find a property, how do you break it down? Once you've got your budget and how do you come up with an offer and know what your offer should be? And then what's your operating plan after that? So that's kind of the brief of the book. Uh, I'll get into some of the details as I always do with uh, reading various blurbs and, and um, snippets from the book and give you a, a taste of what he's got here. So in the beginning, he kind of tells his own story. He's got over a billion dollars of real estate under his portfolio. So he's not he's not just starting out here. Um, so he, he begins the book by telling his story and then sort of breaking some myths in the real estate world. I think he has about 12 in here. I'm going to give you like one or two. So his second myth is you need to start small. Uh, Big deals are too risky. He actually makes a case that small deals are too risky. So he says, mortgages on smaller properties like single family homes are almost always guaranteed through the buyer's own personal earning potential and wealth. You may be surprised to learn that the larger investment property loans are secured by the asset itself. So a rental property is viewed more like a business than a home, for example, right? So when you're going to buy any business, you have to get the, you know, the income of the property or the business, uh, expenses, look at the operating costs and versus profits. And then like, is it a profitable business? And then if you get this much loan, what's your cost there? And can you make your payments? Right. I mean, basically, the bank is saying, like, if this person, if we loan this person this money, will they be able to make their payments based on the business itself? And that's more how banks view larger rental properties because that's the intent of the building. Right. So, myth number three is you can flip your way to success or get rich quick with no money down. While some people do make a fair amount of money flipping houses and it is possible to make money, he sees it more like day trading the stock market. So while some people do make money on day trading, most of the big dogs and the experts just say that is a 
so much more like gambling and it's a difficult game, especially for the small guy, right? So like, that's like sitting at the poker table with pros. You might win a few hands or even walk out of there the winner, but the chances are slim, right? Whereas if you buy a stock and hold it for the long term, your chances of, of earning money is is very good. Same with properties, but it's more than just the appreciation of the property. There's several things to it. Every time you sell a property, that's a taxable event. And you either have to roll that money into a new property very quickly to avoid taxes, or you have to pay the taxes, right? So he gives an example of a property he bought, a very large property. And um, it it appreciated, actually he built it. And it, by the time it was done, it was worth like two and a half million more than what they had put into it. And so they could have easily sold it, made two and a half million dollars pretty quickly. But that would have been a taxable event. And that the taxes on that would have been $750,000. So you sort of lose a certain amount of your working capital by paying that much in taxes, right? So he says, if you want the money out, you don't need to sell. You refinance the property and pull out what equity you can There is no taxable event and you are not forced to put the money into another investment. In the case of the 208 unit property, we will refinance and we will use the equity that we pulled out of the property to pay back our investors with interest. It's a great system and best of all, you still own the property. You continue to receive cash flow from the building in your the form of rent. And as the building appreciates, you can refinance and take the gain tax-free again. See, so that's how you operate off of basically leveraging debt and then refinancing to take out equity. No taxes paid. You can take that money and do what you want with it because you don't have to quickly roll it into something else to avoid taxes. So moving on, he sort of has like a business to-do list. If you're just getting started and you want to do this, right? There's a few things you'll need to do. Find your team, evaluate the market, find a great property, assign a valuation to the property, establish a proper property plan, develop a budget and manage the property. So that's what he goes through essentially in the rest of the book. Um, each of those steps, he breaks them down into more detail and, uh, teaches you how to go from where you're at to owning a property and managing it well. So first of all, research is, uh, you know, something that you might be threatened by, but he goes into some detail here and he basically says there's three levels of research. Level one research is what I call the very preliminary stuff. To do it, you don't even have to leave your house. This is research you do before you even set foot on a property. So this is where you essentially are on the computer, making a few calls, uh, assessing like population changes, growth, what areas have sort of a population attraction, their higher quality, where are the bad spots, uh, what kind of business or industry might be coming to the location, et cetera, right? You're trying to see like, is there a potential population growth coming to this area? Um, and who do I need to reach out to and contact? And can I find properties of the sort that I am interested in in this region. You also narrow your market extreme. Like you need to say, like if you were talking about buying a a property in one state, you would certainly want to narrow it to a city and then a suburb or downtown or whatever. And you really want to get narrow, narrow, narrow until you're 
looking at a specific area that meets sort of some of those demands with like population growth coming, some attractions or jobs that that might help with that. We'll get into that later. Level two research. Level two research is about meeting face to face. And we didn't waste time. Even before we arrived in Portland, we had made phone calls to set up meetings with property managers, commercial brokers, commercial lenders, city officials, and business people like the publisher of the local apartment guide. So level two is actually getting on site, looking at properties, seeing what the options actually look like, uh, where you know you can physically take a look at the structures, talk to the people that know the market, and start to gather insight from those professionals who are actually there. Then level three research. When we return to Arizona, so he's walking through a story where he bought a property in in Oregon, but he lives in Arizona and his team functions out of Arizona. So level three, when we returned to Arizona, we not only vividly remembered what green trees looked like, we knew Portland was an investment opportunity, but we still needed a bit more information to feel good about making a move there. That's where level three research came into play. We first called every team referral and asked them all the same questions we asked for our initial contact in Portland. Not only did they give us their opinion and their insights, they pointed us in the direction of numerous websites, analysts, newspapers, economic development offices, city government contacts, and other Portland businesses who could add the finishing touches to our picture. So he says they went on to sign up for all these different newsletters and get in touch with different people. And they started really building a team in Portland. No need for them to try and manage this property several states away. Let's go ahead and find some professionals that can do the job in the area. I'm going to skip into chapter five. He says it, it is called Swamp Land for Sale, right? And you do not want to buy a bad property. And really, a lot of investors say, you make all your money on the purchase, right? And so what that means is that if you can buy a property that's operating uh, profit is very good, that depends on how much you pay for the property because you can lose that profit by paying too much on any property. It doesn't matter how good it is, how much growth there is. Uh, and even if you could weather the storm, it could potentially take you years to become you know, positive cash flow on a property that you paid too much for. So he says, if we learn anything from all those poor people who have purchased swampland with the hopes of striking it rich, we should take away one lesson. The market is more important than the property. So then he goes into how do you identify like whether this is going to be a good market and whether or not you would like to get a property in this market. So Number one, he says, supply and demand. I make sure my first objective is to get an accurate read on the supply and demand in the area. So we ask our emerging team, specifically brokers and property managers, they had detailed data, including property names, sizes, addresses, and dates of construction. Seek out this help. Why do all the work on your own? Um, so then he says, there are three main drivers of supply and demand. So number one is employment. This is the first and possibly most important indicator of demand and for good reason. If a market or submarket has lots of jobs, people will come to fill the jobs. It is a fact that populations follow employment. Second, population. 
So really, they're all based on population, but why population, right? That's what he breaks down. So population, a world of choices, choose to have your first, well, let's face it, all your investment rental properties where the people are. He says, don't get sucked into some deal out in the suburbs or in some farm country where people are not migrating and there's not enough renters, right? A lot of people might be inclined to just purchase their own home. And um, if there's available land to build and those kinds of things, it's far more easy to actually build your own house than rent. So while there may be renters, the consistency's not there. The potential for uh, increasing your rent rates and all those things are a little harder. Places that have clearly defined personas are population draws, almost as powerful as employment. And that's like, he describes that in the chapter, but like things that make it a, an enjoyable, attractive place to live, that could be based on a variety of different things. He gives a list of some things here that uh, you should also pay attention to. New highways or high ex- highway extensions, master planned communities, new sports stadiums and arenas, universities and university expansion, development areas, casinos, military bases, company relocation, major events. These are just some of them, right? And then we move on to location. Location is the most important thing when it comes to real estate. At least that's what everyone says, and I agree. So a great location has drive-by visibility. So this decreases your need for marketing when people can simply drive their route to work and they go, oh, I wonder how much those apartments cost. Great locations possess a rare quality. There's a -a one-of-a-kind quality about the, the great locations, right? Great locations are in demand. Great locations are in low supply and high demand which goes into his supply and demand idea. So setting your target market parameters. And he he says that he likes to have like a really good idea of what he's going after, whether that's like an eight plex that can provide, you know, $4,000 profit monthly, or if he's got a big deal, he's like, I want to get a 150 unit complex where I can have an on-site site manager and pay for that to be done, right? He really gets detailed about what he's looking for. And then he starts breaking down his sub-market. Again, going to like location and and the community, he says, look around, right? And he, he actually managed a property for somebody that bought a site unseen because the numbers seem to make sense to this person. But when they went in there to sort of clean the place up, they found all kinds of like drugs and convicts and empty units and uh, violence and and stuff like that. And so he says, we managed to clean up the apartment community through mass evictions and the hiring off-duty city police officers to patrol the property 24 hours a day. We made it undesirable for criminals and slowly good people moved back in. But the apartment building was all we cleaned up. We did not change the neighborhood. And that's the lesson. You cannot change the neighborhood. So make sure the property is in a place that you're prepared to manage. He says that if he sees a wave that's worth riding, he doesn't wait for things to come on sale. He'll just go for it, start contacting people and see if he can get someone to sell him a property without even putting it on the market. So that doesn't hold him back from trying to purchase properties in a place that he wants properties. So is it really a diamond? Is this chapter seven? He says, there's a few things that you should know here. He says, the seller's asking price is irrelevant. 
you determine the property value, which becomes your offer. With multiple units, the property value is based on the current cash flow of the property. Okay, so this gets really good. These middle chapters were really detailed and very helpful uh, as someone who's sort of wondering how to make a plan, right? And he says, this is my five-step property evaluation, and I've used it for the past 15 years with outstanding results. Here it is in a nutshell. Number one, verify property income. Number two, verify expenses. Three, determine net operating income. Four, find the capitalization rate and valuation. Five, calculate the loan payment and your profit or cash on cash. So the next little bit, he goes into every one of those steps. So I'll give you a taste of a few of them. Verify property income. You dive in to the numbers from the seller, right? You try and get sort of their rent rate, their past rent statements, their rolling statements. You get their expenses, their, um, you know, did they pay someone to manage the property uh, vacancy rates? And then you got to try and compare that to the market around you and stuff like that. And he, he makes it really simple, very simple steps to sort of get yourself a bit of a pro forma so that you can see what is the operating here. Uh, number two is verify the expenses. Kind of goes into that same idea that I just said. You're getting this information from the property, understanding what the market around you um, looks like, and then you can make a determination of what your expenses look like. Number three determine net operating income. Now that you know the income, now you know the expenses, you can determine how much profit you'll probably make. Find the capitalization rate and valuation. Uh, this may sound complicated to you, but basically capitalization rate is equals net operating income divided by the purchase price. So you use this to make your offer. He says, in the book, he's calculating all this stuff as he goes, but here's the end results. He says $22,368 divided by 0.0874 equals $255,926. The offer should not be more than $256,000. So he just walked you through all the steps to find the capitalization rate and then find out what's your offer going to be because now we know how much money we can make I can't afford to pay more than 256, right? And then step five, calculate the loan payment and your profit cash on cash. Uh, and that's also another simple formula. Basically, how much cash did you put down? So then you take your profit divided by your down payment, and that tells you how much uh, your cash on cash is. It gives you a ratio. So like your investment, let's say you invest you know, X number of dollars as your down payment. And then you make X number of dollars in your monthly times that by 12, divide it, the profit by the down payment. And that'll tell you, are you making 9%, 10%, 11% on your money, right? Which is key in the investment world because on the stock market, you're typically making about 10 to 15% in the, the recent years has been high. Um, but can you do better in this in in real estate than on the stock market or something else? Or if, if your real estate investment is very low, then it might be worth looking at something else. Whereas if you can get in that 10, 11, 12% range, and the nice thing about real estate is you can pull money out tax-free and use it in other areas, you have the monthly income, you have the uh, net worth uh, appreciation of the property, and then you can use a, the 
proceeds tax-free. And so those three advantages make real estate an attractive thing. Now, due diligence. He says the goal of due diligence is to find out 100% of everything there is to know about the property. So before, when you were looking into it, you're doing your best to find out things, but you probably won't know more than about 70, 80% of the property's details. Um, and, and you can make an offer based on that. But then now that you've got the contract locked in, you really got to do your due diligence. And he actually gives you a due diligence list that goes on for a few pages, things that you should really look into to protect your downside. One of the last things I'm going to say is that the property plan and outing value. Before you buy a property, you should have a plan of how you can increase the profits or what what type of maintenance and updates it needs, who's going to manage it, what is the local market uh, around it look like, and how's it compare. Like you should really have a a detailed plan of how you're going to manage the property. Again, this is a business, so how are you going to manage this business? Um, if you don't have that plan before the purchase is finalized, you may find yourself in a bit of trouble. And again, every good business has goals and plans and clear objectives, and that's no different in real estate. So anyway, uh, that's a, a quick brief of the book. The middle chapters were super detailed and very helpful for someone who uh, really wants to expand their real estate or get into real estate. So I would definitely recommend this book. It's only 160 pages. Um, he does have other books. I also own a couple other of his books in this series. And so maybe one day we'll get to those. But if you do want the book, I'll put the link in the show notes that you can purchase that from Amazon. And I appreciate you guys listening. So we'll catch you on the next one. Adios. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.